0: Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an American social scientist and cybersecurity expert about a worrying lack of agreement among governments on how best to promote the more beneficial aspects of the Internet.
1: We really need to get the communities together to focus on advancing the policy and law to keep up with technology in the same way that the authoritarian regimes have done a very good job keeping technology and policy law integrated and leveraging it for their own objectives.
0: That was Andrea Little-Limbargo, chief social scientist at Endgame, a cybersecurity firm, who spoke to my colleague Hannah Kushler in San Francisco recently. What
2: does it mean to be a chief social scientist at a company like Endgame?
0: I have a background
1: in political science. I have a PhD in that, uh, where I focus on international relations and conflict and national security issues. But I also integrate that with the computational aspect, human-computer interaction, how quantitative analytics can help support various aspects of, in this case, cybersecurity. And so I wear a lot of hats where part of it is looking at the trends of the internet, what kind of conflict is going on, both at tactical up to strategic levels. And then I do an awful lot also with user experience and how to interact with the computer to make it so that a broader range of analysts and operators can make it more accessible to them, given the workforce shortages and all those kind of things, enabling a broader group of people to understand what's actually going on in the really complex realm of cybersecurity. Because I think for a lot of people, you know, immediately they get turned off if they don't have a technical background. And so trying to make it much more approachable for a broader audience.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. But two very different areas.
1: Very, very different areas. You know, it's a really complex topic, and for the most part, it seems to you know, hone in on the technical aspects of it, which is really, really important, but it's really a socio-technical system. And so I evaluate sort of across the board various aspects of how that socio-technical system impacts security, governance, development, privacy, a uh, broad range of issues. I mean, at the end of the day, so, you know, security is touching every aspect of our lives.
2: Yeah. And you've written a lot about what's been called variously vulcanization of the internet or internet localization. And it seems to me that you believe in this thing called the one multi-stakeholder internet. And so I wanted to know, what do you define that as?
1: Sure. It's interesting. There's starting to be basically two different paths that countries are taking. Back in the day when the internet first emerged, there was sort of this utopian vision of the internet being this all-encompassing force for good where it would help with development, democracy, governance, spreading information, educating, providing access to information that people didn't formally have, everyone assumed it would continue to progress. And what's happened is that rules and regulations actually do exist on the internet. Countries do have a say in what happens. It's not a borderless, seamless internet. We see from the GDPR to what's going on in Russia and China, which we can talk about, really creating more of sovereign boundaries. And so on the one hand, You've got more of this this multi-stakeholder model, which is the main model put forth by mainly democracies in the world system, really trying to make it so that we can progress more towards that utopian vision, where we can find that balance between security and privacy. Individuals can still have their own data protected at the same time as leveraging the internet for the greater good of the world. So helping promote economic growth, helping promote democracy and access to information, solving a lot of the, the problems that technology can and should be able to solve, but with more of a benign take on the internet. So it's still somewhat of a utopian vision of it, but it's one of those things where we need to aspire towards, I think, some high-level goals and along those lines. Because if you don't have that vision out there, then it creates a vacuum in the world system where other visions and other models start to take hold.
2: Yeah, and we're definitely going to talk a lot about those. But who are the multi-stakeholders? Who are the stakeholders?
1: Basically, it's the terminology that's been put forth at the United Nations, the group of governmental experts, for several years did a lot of work pushing forth various aspects that fall under this multi-stakeholder model. And so they're looking at things as far as creating global norms. Norms are basically the rules of the road that help guide the appropriate behavior within cyberspace in this case. There's been this big push for norms at that global level at the UN. They came pretty close to basically agreeing upon that that low-hanging fruit of what norms should be. And it's anything from not attacking critical infrastructure to not interfering in cyber emergency response teams, those kind of things, that kind of seem like they should be something that all countries could agree upon. Uh, It seems like it's in their best interest. But right as the negotiations went up to 23rd hour, they fell apart. And so what's happened since then is that there has been this vacuum of global thought leadership as far as pushing forth the multi-stakeholder model. And what's been interesting is, absent... The government push on that, some of the tech companies and multinational companies are starting to fill in to create those cyber norms that fall under the auspices of what a multi-stakeholder model would look like, where you have all the different actors more or less agreeing upon these norms and rules of the road that are mutually beneficial. And so like the tech accord that some of the companies did, I think around April that was pushed by Microsoft. Exactly. If you remember, about a year before that, Microsoft pushed forth this notion of a digital Geneva Convention. And so some of those notions were then put forth into the Tech Accord. But they're not the only ones. And I think several dozen companies have signed on to that, and I think that number has been growing. But that's not the only one. Siemens has pushed forth a charter of trust. And so there are a couple of these different multinational corporation efforts to create these norms absent this. Global vision that's being pushed forth by the governments. And so I think that's an interesting trend to look at. And a lot of what they talk about does fall into that multinational or multi stakeholder model. So I think that's interesting. There are some other efforts that people are looking at within the OECD and some other regional agreements to try and help continue this push towards the norms. Because it is really, really important. Because if there aren't countries pulling together to create these norms that are trying to uphold privacy and security and support democracy and those aspects, that vacuum will be there and it will be filled. We've seen that over and over again throughout history that when there isn't a certain push or leadership in certain areas, that vacuum gets filled very, very quickly.
2: So how much power do the tech companies actually have there? I remember in the tech accord, one of the agreements was not to create offensive weaponry for governments. But obviously the US, China, Russia, they all have their own departments devoted to creating offensive weaponry. Do they need the tech companies?
1: You know, we're, we're in an interesting time now where previously, especially in the U.S., probably in Europe as well, a lot of the companies were very tightly linked with the government as far as helping promote national security. There was a very tight linkage between them, especially throughout the Cold War. We're not seeing that linkage as much these days. And so you see, especially looking at like Google, having the employees push back on Project Maven, for instance, so not supporting various kinds of R&D for national security. So it is interesting as we look ahead, evaluating what the role of these big tech companies is going to be in promoting you know, both the multi-stakeholder model, but also the national security of the countries in which they're generally based. And it's in flux right now, and that's why it's actually it's a fascinating time to watch it. It's a little disconcerting at times, but I think that there still needs to be some sort of agreement and understanding and levels of collaboration there between the government and those companies. And we see that in other countries there is a much tighter linkage especially when you think about state-owned enterprises that are very, very tightly linked to certain governments. That's not how it works in the U.S. and the EU, but I think we need to find some way to overcome a lot of the disagreements. There's so much focus still on, say, encryption and information sharing, which are debates we've had for decades at this point in... You know, while we're having debates, a lot of other countries are moving ahead and really looking at how technology can be used and how the companies can help support the governments in that area. And so it's more difficult in democracies because you do want to ensure there's that privacy aspect of it, especially for individual citizens. And so I think that relationship is going to be one of the most important ones to keep an eye on. Yeah.
2: Obviously, there are many threats to this ideal. What would you say is the biggest or most acute at the
1: moment? The other vision is cyber sovereignty. And this is the model put forth by Russia, China, China. And then it's actually diffusing down to some other countries, like Vietnam, Philippines, the list goes on and on. And so whereas the multi-stakeholder model is, it does a lot on protecting individuals and looking at civil liberties and security and privacy, the cyber sovereignty model leverages the notion of sovereignty so that the government has access and control within their own borders, which is great. That's what sovereignty is supposed to do. But they leverage that and use that to justify greater government control of data, government access to data, some aspects of the surveillance society that we're starting to hear coming about having access to IP of certain companies, having access to the personally identifiable information of individuals. Cyber sovereignty is a way for the government basically to have complete information control within their borders and then spread that model as well. And that's where I find it. the biggest challenge is that you know, what's going on in China and Russia and some of these other countries right now isn't staying in those borders. I think a lot of people step back and think, okay, well, yeah, that's going on there. It's not going to impact us in Europe or you know, Australia or the U.S., but it is. You know, Australia is feeling very much some aspects of this from China as far as various kinds of interference in their information. It is spreading, and so I think it's naive to think that those kind of models uh, and those approaches are just going to stay within their borders. And the reason why that matters for us, in addition to wanting to preserve civil liberties and having control of my own data and so forth, it does impact for the U.S. innovation. Because we still have, within the U.S., one of the biggest innovation hubs in the globe at unprecedented levels. What happens when there's access to all that information and all that data? We no longer have the monopoly on that, or at least we no longer have the first-mover advantage.
2: One of the statistics you use is you said that two-thirds of all internet users are subjected to some kind of censorship of criticism aimed at the government, the military, or ruling families. And that is partly countries like Vietnam adopting their own laws, but it's also the outreach from countries like China and Russia. I'd love to learn more about what China is doing in Australia.
1: Oh, sure. It's a variety of aspects, anything from more Chinese language, inserting more of that into some of the cultural centres and so forth with their narrative so it's very much the sort of the pro-China narrative, the pro-Chinese companies. And so it's a little bit of a you know, marketing campaign, I guess, but then also really doing much more so the boots on the ground. You know, it's not just in the virtual world. There's also the physical world aspect of it. Having more people you know, within Australia or within the United States or within Europe also trying to push forth some of these discussions and influencing how things are reported, those kind of things.
2: And obviously, we've heard a lot about Russian interference in the US election and politics using social media platforms. But something else I read in your work, which I thought was really interesting was that Russia was also trying to push a independent internet infrastructure to other countries, not the US to try and sort of reclaim there's all these concerns that too much internet infrastructure is in the hands of the Americans. What are they doing there?
1: Again, it's one of those things where they're taking more of the multi-pronged approach, and it could be anything from the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Over the last few years, have been talking about trying to create this alternate internet, again, under the notion of cyber sovereignty, to have better access and control of their own data. And so they've been negotiating along those lines. In addition, North Korea for a long time, pretty much there's one channel going in, internet access into North Korea, and that was owned by China. Russia's now provided an alternative avenue. They're slowly providing that infrastructure in there to enable them to also have access. And part of it is it's also building up the the various alliances as well. So it's leveraging more of the infrastructure aspect in addition to more of the disinformation and so forth to try and get that control and have that access, and it helps spread more of their vision. It's fairly similar to China with Huawei and ZTE leveraging their software. They're providing various kinds of additional access to countries and different means, it's similar to what Russia is doing, just in a different tactic. So the strategies are somewhat similar, just the tactics they're taking is a little bit different.
0: That's really interesting. And then- Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, Award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit BankofAmerica.com/bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA. Copyright 2024.
2: China, of course, traditionally they've had the Great Firewall, and no big U.S. internet companies have made many strides there but we've seen reports of Google and Facebook exploring. Do you think they'll have any chance of success if it seems like China wants more control, not less over its own internet?
1: The business imperative seems to be trumping right now the longer-term strategic impact. China has, you know, in addition to the Great Firewall, they've got the Made in China 2025 vision, and then they've got something that's further down the road as far as China's creating the regulations and the rules. That's more disconcerting, and so they're trying to create for 5G networks for AI, quantum computing, right now they're creating those frameworks and the standards that may become global. And so as the tech companies based in the US start to go more and more back into China, it seems to me much more shorter term business rationale versus looking at the longer term because what we've seen time and time again is that the IP gets stolen, short term gain will lead to something where they may lose complete control of their IP over time and then get replaced with some domestic version. And so then they get kicked out. And so I hope that they are evaluating that potential path. And what would be great would be creating more of a negotiation instead. If we're gonna be doing business there, let's also look at what standards you're creating and have an impact in helping guide those instead of just letting those being mandated onto the companies. I'm not optimistic, you know, just based on past experience, what's gone on. So we'll see. That concerns me.
2: Yeah. And, and do you think that Western tech companies are concerned that the Chinese government seems to be taking a no-holds-bars approach to collection and analyzing of data? I'm thinking in particular of this social credit system that's coming, and also even things like facial recognition, we've seen great advances in China simply because they can upload, you know, photos of everybody.
1: Right, and that is the direction that it's going. And if you're talking about the social credit system, that's impacting everything from who's within your social network and comments that you make on social media to whether you've had a jaywalking ticket. It impacts whether you can get a mortgage, whether you can buy an airplane ticket. And so it's really the vast amount of data that is being consumed across all facets of life is what's really disconcerting in that area and then you add the facial recognition component to it and I think that's why Microsoft recently put out a request to the U.S. government to put in some guidelines and regulations on facial recognition before it gets even further down the road and so there are some companies that are very cognizant of some of the challenges and I do think because some of these are still relatively new in the broader term of looking at it that we're not really sure how to handle it but at the same time we can't be doing nothing. For a lot of this, we've kind of been flat-footed instead of starting to look at more creative approaches to what kind of regulations might work, how might we be able to go forth. And that, again, is where you need the tech government collaboration going on. I mean, it's really, really essential. And it almost seems like that divide's getting bigger and bigger instead.
2: Yeah. So you see there someone like Microsoft taking the lead. But where's the U.S. government? Did the U.S. government criticize Russia or China, what they're doing online?
1: The U.S. government, they're a bunch of different actors in different branches. And so... Uh, It's very divided right now, so it's very hard to say what the U.S. government as a whole says, but there has been parts of the government that have been very critical of what Russia has done, and I think we've seen that a lot with the various congressional testimonies, and we've seen some of the senators speaking out. And there has, as well, with China, more so on the areas of what kind of companies to ban doing business with. And then there's additional discussion on looking at some of the Chinese venture capital investments in Silicon Valley that are specifically focused on some of these key tech areas. So we have had aspects of the U.S. government speak out vocally, and we've seen within the Congress tweeting dismay about something. But it honestly hasn't gone a ton further than that. So, you know, it's hard to evaluate where the U.S. is going to go in this area. But it is something that we absolutely have to take seriously. We do need more of a coherent strategy and how to tackle it. It is something that's extraordinarily multifaceted, so it's not easy, but at the same time, it's not something that we can sit back and do nothing about. It's a modern reality, and it's only going to get way more complex as we look at not just the disinformation, but you've got the videos and how the videos can be manipulated, how voice mimicry can occur, and then thinking about quantum computing and the expansion of AI going ahead. So these are all issues that we really need to tackle And it becomes really hard when you have a lot of members of Congress who don't have a very large technical background. That's, again, where the technical community needs to come forward and provide some advice and some suggestions in those areas.
2: Yeah, definitely. And, of course, when we talk about local laws reaching out beyond your borders, it's not just China and Russia. Europe has implemented the General Data Protection Regulation, which is by far the most comprehensive privacy law that any jurisdiction has passed and it affects people outside your borders. If you were in the US you probably got an awful lot of those GDPR consent emails as well. Do you think that it's always bad for the world if a country puts out a new law like that?
1: No, I don't. And that's where, looking at the framing of more of the multi-stakeholder model and that vision versus the cyber sovereignty model, I look at intent. And so the GDPR, I think, is one of the major, if not the largest, efforts so far to focus on individual privacy. And so whereas we've seen cybersecurity laws within Russia and China, both passed them in the last few years, they use the term cybersecurity differently than we think about it. But when you look at the GDPR, it is much more trying to protect individual data privacy, individual rights, moving farther along the lines of reporting when an organization has been hacked so it crosses a lot of different lines. And it actually even addresses some aspects of machine learning and understanding what's driving those results, which can be a challenge. And so it'll be interesting to see how that actually gets implemented in many ways. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that we do need some of those regulations to reach out. Again, they need to be smart. You know, the thing with GDPR was it went through, I think, at least five years of negotiations between various communities of interest, which I think is really, really important. I think that's a good way to do it. And while it by no means is perfect, Nothing is going to be perfect right now, but again, if something like the GDPR doesn't come out, we're just gonna start seeing some of these other frameworks that are more government access to data and ignoring the whole individual data privacy. As we've seen, the companies aren't going to be regulating themselves on this area. And we've seen that over and over again, and they've even admitted that. And so there is some desire also within the population for additional regulation to protect individual privacy, especially when it comes to understanding what of your data has been impacted, what parts have been compromised, all those kind of things. And so I think we do need those kind of frameworks Europe has first-mover advantage in this area as far as moving towards that multi-stakeholder model. And so I think that's a great first step. And I do think that then the businesses are starting to feel it here. I think there are going to be some growing pains as far as implementation as we go ahead. But I think that's to be expected. And I think that's still better than not doing anything at all.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's obviously lots of concern in Silicon Valley about being targets for large fines and things like that. But I was also curious about really what you think the effect will be on the European internet industry. Do you think that data protection could hamper Europe's AI capabilities and change what's possible online there?
1: That's a good question. You know, ideally it'll help in providing some additional leeway in that area. I don't think it will hamstring the tech companies in Europe as far as being forced to comply to that. I think it is helping move in a direction that the actual discussion in the tech community is going anyway. There's a lot more discussion right now on the ethics behind AI. And so again, that's one of those things that's perhaps a little bit overdue. And so where the tech community is going as far as discussing the inherent biases that are in some of the machine learning algorithms, and then looking at, should there be, again, more norms for how to leverage and how to use AI? When are some good use cases? When are some bad ones? Even here, you know, within the Black Hat community, there's discussions on that. And so I think this is something that needs to be discussed. And so Europe, because of the GDPR, may be forcing those discussions a little earlier than, you know, we may be having in the U.S. And so I think that could be a good thing. They could help provide that thought leadership for how to do this in a way that gets at that balance between security and privacy.
2: And you spoke about government access to data, of course, it's not that every European country is not concerned about government access to data. I was wondering what you thought of the impact of the UK Investigatory Powers Act.
1: That's such a good example because it's easy to sort of bucket the multistakeholder model as this utopian vision on one hand, the cyber sovereignty on the other, but it's really a spectrum. And so the Investigatory Act, I think, falls kind of somewhere in the middle, maybe. It's very similar to the US encryption debate. As far as what the government should have access to. If they don't have access to some of this, are they gonna be frozen out of certain data that could help solve different terrorist activities? And so it's one of those things that falls along the middle. I, I think even without access to some data, there's still is a lot of other data that's out there. Creating something like a backdoor, for instance, if someone has access to it, it means other people are gonna try and get access too. And so it's one of those things where these technologies are out there. We need to be more creative how to find some of that data instead of creating greater vulnerabilities and then going into areas of more of the surveillance. That should be much more of a public debate going on right now as far as where the population is comfortable and where it's not and then bringing in the experts and coming to something that might be a little more satisfying for folks that want to integrate both security and the civil liberties. But it's hard. Um, There are a lot of competing interests in there. You can see the arguments on both sides, but these are more discussions that we're not having nearly enough and we need to be having them more and more.
2: Yeah. You've done a very good job of laying out how complicated this policy landscape is and not giving too much hope. But as we look forward to the future of the internet, I was wondering whether you think that there is technical solutions being considered because some of the issues that we face now in cybersecurity and privacy are a result of having an internet that was created for the military and then for academics years ago and it was not focusing on possible hacking by nation states. Do you think that there are technical solutions that could help us, say, improve identity online?
1: I think there are, and I think there's a lot of research going on in this area. And so on the one hand, being in this area does lead to a lot of doom and gloom scenarios. And so I think it's actually important to not always go down that road. I think we need to be realistic about what's going on and not keep our head in the sand, because that's what's gone on, I think, for quite some time. We're finally at the point where we're admitting, you know, and that's the first step in solving the problem. One of those things that we kind of forgot about the larger, broader population when the internet came out and when AI is coming out and looking at, you know, facial recognition and so forth. You know, a lot of these technologies are are generally dual use. And so as we go forward and looking at technical solutions in these areas, understanding that they probably have the potential to be used and misused. I feel like we're doing fairly well on the tech side and being creative and innovative and looking for more and more solutions in this area. DARPA just released something that could spot deep fakes. And so that's part of the cat and mouse of, well, we've found one way to spot deep fakes. The people who are on the other side are going to find ways to circumvent that. So there's a cat and mouse going on with technology right now in that area, but the policy side still just isn't progressing. And then the other aspect is, you know, as populations that are targets of some of this disinformation and some of the attacks, just being more cognizant and, you know, better educating the, the population as far as what is going on, because I think that can go a really long way, and that's a lot harder, especially when you have, groups of population that may not even believe what the government is saying at this point. And so it's really quite a big social challenge, as well as a technical challenge right now. And I actually think the social challenge is a harder one to solve. I have a lot more faith in the way that technology is going to be progressing. So we really need to get the communities together to really focus on advancing the policy and law to keep up with technology. In the same way that the authoritarian regimes have done a very good job keeping technology and policy law integrated and leveraging it for their own objectives, we need to do the same thing. But moving towards our own objectives instead.
2: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think that there's concern about educating politicians, but really it's about educating everyone what to spot and what to be suspicious of. Yep,
1: yeah, absolutely. And you know, just being careful what you're putting online, taking some extra steps to be safe. A lot of it goes back to sort of the classical critical thinking skills that we all should have learned going through school, as far as you know your sourcing, understand what the objectives are of the people who are spreading that information, and not reacting so quickly to the clickbait. And the tech companies are starting to address some of that. I think more needs to be done and more experimentation needs to be done to help continue the awareness and the training aspect of it.
0: Thanks for listening. We've been asking our listeners to contribute to an informal survey on overrated and underrated technologies, potential threats to the tech industry, and what non-tech book provides the best insight into the impact of technology on our societies. If you'd like to take part, please email us at tectonic at ft.com, or why not send us an audio recording that we can include in a future episode. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.